we are, we're grateful for the opportunity that we have to know that you've left us your, your word. That uh, when we are wondering who you are, what you're like, what our world's all about, that y- you have chosen to leave your word and it's permanent. So people of all ages and through all ages have a chance to investigate your word and discover who you are, what you're like. God, I know for teachers, a burden we have with the Bible, with your word, is this burden to be truthful with it. So this morning, God, that's my prayer, as it always is. Uh, If I get off track or if I say something that isn't right, um, I am so glad I can trust that you won't let anybody be influenced the wrong way. On the other hand, God, I thank you, too, that you take truth, and when we talk about it, you find ways to invade our souls and our minds, and you transform us. You're shaping us into the kind of people that that we want to be and that you want us to be, and I'm grateful. I thank you for how you've done that in my life, and I pray that you'll continue to do that in the life of everybody here, especially with what we talk about this morning, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, Donna, Donna's boss is um, just a couple years older than Donna and I, and they, Donna's uh, boss has, uh, they've entered the grandchild era of life at roughly the same time we have. So I think Donna and her boss spend a couple hours every week sharing um, cute grandchild stories, um, like this one. This is one Donna just told me. Mason is the two-and-a-half-year-old grandson of her boss, and before bedtime, Every week, Mason has a little ritual that he goes through, and his ritual includes um, every night he gets exactly two animal crackers before he goes to bed. So one night this past week, I don't know what night it was, one night this past week, uh, little Mason was a little bit nixnutsy. I love that word. Uh, If you're Pennsylvania Dutch, you know what it is, right? Nixnutsy. But um, if, uh, so he's a little nixnutsy in a bathtub, and mom warned him, she said, Mason, if you don't start listening to mommy, you're not going to get an animal cracker at bedtime. Well, he didn't believe her, I suppose. And eventually, uh, mom had to say to him, I'm sorry, Mason, but you didn't listen to mommy, so no cookies for you before bed. So his current routine involves, uh, right before bedtime, he always watches a couple minutes of some kid's video. I don't know what it is. And it's during that kid's video that mom usually gives him his two animal crackers. So on this night, when he's watching the video and realizing he's not getting any cookies, um, you know, he asked for his cookies. Mommy, where's my cookies? And Mommy said, Mason, don't you remember? You didn't listen to Mommy. No cookies tonight. So Mason crawled up on Mommy's lap, furrowed his brow, put his hands on Mommy's cheek, and said, start over? Isn't that wonderful? Start over. Two and a half years old, and he already knows the longing of every human heart and the message of the gospel. Start over. Yes. Yes. You know, I was going to ask Aaron um, if my granddaughter, Macy, has said anything similar so that I could use her instead of Mason in this story. But I already know the answer to that question because Macy hasn't done anything wrong yet. So, um, actually, um, it's not true. And um, I, I know that 
given the track record of human beings, there will come a day when Macy Page 2 wants the same thing that we all want at some point. Start over. Maybe it will come when there's a day that she will wish she could erase and undo some costly sin. Maybe it'll come when she buries her first pet. Maybe it'll come when she stands by the first grave opened for someone else, maybe mine, and she will say, start over. How we wish we could. How we wish we could. So let's talk about that. We've been uh, at Horizon the last couple of weeks, I hope anyway, that we've been uncovering why there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And to uncover this about Jesus, we have been following Jesus through a very bizarre book, the last book of the Bible, written by a man named John, who probably was closer to Jesus than any of his other friends were. John, when he wrote this, was the last surviving apostle. All of the others have been martyred. John is actually, at the time he writes this, John's imprisoned by Rome on a barren island called Patmos. And he's writing this book that is just packed full of signs and symbols, but he's writing it specifically to give hope to his Christian friends who are at the mercy of Roman persecution. This morning, we're going to reach the end of the book, the very end of the book, the last two chapters. And when we get to the end of this book, we're actually at the end of history. Uh, History as we know it has now come to an end, and John is actually going to tell us what comes next after history's over. And what comes next is the longing of every human heart. Start over. Well, that's not the half of it. So let's read the end of this book. I'm going to start in Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to skip some verses. I'll kind of tell you where we're going. You can follow along on the screen, although... It was only right before the service started that I told Missy what verses we're skipping, so we'll see. Uh, I'm going to start at chapter 21, uh, verse 1. On the other side of history, this is what John is seeing and writing. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God and they will be my children. 
I'll skip down to verse 10 if you're following in your Bible. So then he took me in spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper, as clear as crystal. Crystal. The city wall was broad and high, with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels, and the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were written on the gates. And there were three gates on each side, east, north, south, and west. The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked to me held in his hand a gold measuring stick to measure the city and its gates and its walls. When he measured the city, he found it was a square as wide as it was long. In fact, its length and width and height were each 1,400 miles. Then he measured the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick, according to the human standard used by the angel. Now skip a couple verses down to verse 22. I saw no temple in this new Jerusalem, this city, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory." Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day because there's no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and their honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the book of life. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street of this new city. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face. And his name will be written on their foreheads, and there will be no night there, no need for sun or lamps or moon, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. You know, in my lifetime, I have, um, I have heard a couple sentences in my life that I, I have loved, and I've never forgotten these sentences. There's, uh, there's the one-word sentence, yes that I heard when I asked a young girl a very important question 39 years ago, and that's a sentence I've never forgotten. One word, yes. There are definitely two of them in there, which I heard an ultrasound technician say to us a few years later. It's a boy was a sentence I heard a few years after that, and I've never forgotten any of those sentences. You should take a month off and go hunting is not one I've heard yet, but I'm waiting. <laughs> but none of them can top this sentence from John. Behold, I am making all things new. Nothing tops that one. Nothing. Behold, I am making all things new. You know, in the book of Revelation, and I mentioned this already, history as, as we know it, John's been telling us a story of history, but history has now come to an end. 
And in this vision that John was gifted by God and then God also gifted to us, John says, history's done. There's that simple sentence in verse 6 where John hears Jesus say from the throne, it's finished, it's done, it's completed. God's purposes in history are now finished. And so what we get in the last two chapters of Revelation is John actually gets a peek into what happens next after history. And John hears this voice from the throne, this voice of Jesus saying, John, behold, I am making all things new. Now, when you think about heaven, I don't know what pictures come to your mind. I don't know if, you know, for most of us, we're kind of inflicted with the wrong picture of heaven. I think some of us think, well, heaven is this place where invisible souls live forever and our spirits are. But according to the Bible, heaven is a very real place, as real as this earth is. And that has been the plan of God all along, ever since the garden, maybe even before the garden, God has planned a very real heaven. And ancient prophets who knew this, guys like Isaiah, thousands of years ago, long before Jesus even, Isaiah picked up on this vision of God. And even Isaiah long ago said, looking into this heaven, said, look, I am going to make all things new. And Jesus often in his messages talking about heaven, Jesus would talk about the time when all things would be renewed or made new. And Paul picked up on this idea. And Paul talked in Romans 8 about this, this dream that all creation, Paul said, every corner has this, this dream along with God of a time when creation will be freed from its slavery to death and decay. So this is not a new thing, it's an old, old thing, this vision of God to make all things new. And now John is actually getting a peek into this, into the other side of history when this is actually starting to happen. A new heaven and a new earth are being formed, John says, because the old ones are no more, they've passed away. And John sees everything, everything being made new. This is God's grand moment of saying, start over, start over. Now, having read this, and I know that, you know, it's, it's a bizarre kind of thing full of all kinds of signs and symbols, but for the sake of clarity, you should know that John, when he's seeing this vision and when he's writing it, it's full of all kinds of symbols and all kinds of signs. But there are three specific symbols or three metaphors that John uses in this chapter, in these chapters, to describe this moment when God says, I'm starting over and I'm making everything new. And the three symbols that John uses or the three metaphors is he talks about a new city or a new Jerusalem. He talks about a new bride and he talks about a new garden. Those are the three symbols, a new city, a new bride, and a new garden. And to be fair with you, and hopefully, you know, just to give you a little bit of advice about when you actually read this yourself, John always mixes up his metaphors. They always get jumbled up. 
So, for example, if you were here when we started this, there was a time when John heard that there was a lion and he turned to look and what he saw was a lamb who looked like he was slaughtered. And John is always doing that, mixing up his metaphors. metaphors. So even here he mixes them up. And just to be clear, when we read this, John, because he mixes things up, when John sees the new city, he actually describes a bride. And when he sees a new bride, he actually describes a city. But even though they're all mixed up, these are the metaphors that John uses to describe the moment when God makes everything new. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a peek into these three metaphors, and we're going to start with the city, this new city that he sees. John says that he saw the new Jerusalem descending from the new heaven and taking its place on the new earth. Now, if you caught this, when John is describing this new city, he says that there are some really important things missing from this city. Number one, John said, there is no sea anymore, no ocean, which once and for all finally settles the debate of whether or not true Christians are mountain people or beach people. <laughs> it's the mountains, sorry. No, actually, to tell you the truth, um, the ancient Jewish people, the ancient Israelites, were never especially known for being at home on the oceans, on the seas. Um, usually in the Bible, almost always, whenever the seas are mentioned, usually the seas for the Israelites are symbols of chaos and fear and death and the enemy. So, for example, Isaiah once talked about the seas, and Isaiah talked about the restlessness, the chaos. The seas are constantly churning up mud. And then in this book, the book of Revelation, when the sea gets mentioned in Revelation, the enemy of God is actually emerging from the sea. So for John, when John says there was no sea, the absence of a sea is simply John's way of saying that in this new heaven and this new earth, there will be no chaos or restlessness or fear. And then he goes on, and there's some other things that are missing. I don't know if you caught this, but several times John says, you know, there's no sun, there's no moon, because God illuminates this city. There is a wall, and there are gates around this city, but that's only because in John's world, the very first look that a person would ever have of a city is that city's walls. So the walls were meant to be a symbol of the glory of that city. And the gates were the thing that a person would, would always enter. So for the, in the ancient world, the gate was always a place where the pride of the city was on display. But even though John says there's a wall and there are gates, those gates never need to be closed because John said there's no night there. There's never anything to fear. There's nothing you need to lock out. There's nothing you need to lock in. The gates, John says, are always open and they're always inviting. But what may be most important about this city, and to be honest with you, probably the thing that is most boring for us when we read about this city is that the city gets measured. John says he sees an angel measuring this city. And not only is the city huge, but it's a cube. Did you catch that at all? John says the city is 1,400 miles 
long 1,400 miles wide and 1,400 miles high. So he's describing a city that isn't a square, it's a cube. And before you start thinking, wow, we're going to need some big elevators in a city like that, remember that John's point, the point of these visions, is not for you to see the images, but to understand them as symbols and not visualize them, but see them. And John is giving us a symbol that every single Jewish reader would instantly recognize. And almost all of his original readers were Jewish Christians, and they would see it immediately. We miss it, but they got it. Because the single most sacred spot, the most holy spot on the whole earth for a Jewish person was a very simple cube. John has already told us when he read this, he said one of the other things that's missing in this new Jerusalem is there's no temple. He said there's no temple because there's no need for one. God is right there, he said. God's the temple. But this is really, really important. In the Jewish temple, and there was only ever one Jewish temple at a time, it was destroyed three times and rebuilt twice, The last time it was destroyed was by the Romans in A.D. 70. But there was only ever one temple, and that temple always had at its very center, at its core, a place that was called the most holy place. And that's a kind of a diagram, and see if I can figure out how to use this little tricky thing. Yeah, pretty cool. See that little circle right there? Um, that's, the, that's the most holy place in the temple. And that temple, all three temples that were built, the first one that Solomon built, this most holy place was always a cube, 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet. And this most holy place was always the place where God said to the Jewish people, this is where I'll meet you. This is where I will be. This is where I will appear with you. And only one single human being, the high priest, was ever allowed to enter this most holy place one day every year, the Day of Atonement. And so every Jewish person would immediately recognize the symbolism of a city that is a cube. No longer is there one place on the planet But now there's a whole city that is a perfect cube. One giant, miles long, miles wide, miles high city that is itself the most holy place. And it's God's way of saying this entire city and everything in it is now the most holy place because I live here. I live in it. And every person, God is saying, is now invited in. Every day, all day long, because God's home is now with us and our home is now with him. Which is why John goes on to say when he describes this new city, John talks about some other things that will be missing from heaven, from this city. John says there will be no more death, no more sorrow, 
more crying, no more pain. All these things are gone forever, and God himself will wipe away every tear from every eye forever, for God's home is now with his people. Imagine. Starting over, imagine. Now, the deal for us is we're not Jewish. Uh, This symbolism of a whole city that is now the most holy place probably flies right over our heads. But it might help you to know how the Jewish people still to this day think of Jerusalem, to this day. You know this is Passover, right? The Jewish season of Passover. Do you know that when Passover ends, when the celebration of Passover ends, there's a song that our Jewish friends will sing. The Jews have been singing this song for centuries. I tried to practice saying it in Hebrew. I can't. You probably wouldn't know the difference, but I would. Can't say it in Hebrew. But it's in English, it's a song that says next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. It's for the Jewish people, it's the way of saying that their greatest hope for redemption, their greatest hope for a world of peace, the greatest hope for shalom, the greatest dream they can have is next year in Jerusalem. It's their way of saying, someday, someday we'll be home. Someday we'll be home. Home. I don't know what you think of when you think about home. You know, there was a time not that long ago when every baby was born at home. Every life got its start at home. Sometimes there are moms and dads even today who say, you know, we want our child to be born at home. Hospitals have gone to great lengths to make birthing rooms look less like sterile hospitals and more like a home. For most people, that's where we want our lives to end as well, right? At home. Not unusual for families to say, can we take him home? He wants to die at home, surrounded by people he loves, which is kind of redundant in some ways, isn't it? Because that's what a home is, being surrounded by people we love. Home isn't just walls and carpets and doors and cabinets. It's the place in which the days and the nights and the hours of our lives get lived with people we love. You know, one time years ago, I, when I did kids' sermons during church, I was up in front of the church and all the little kids from church were kind of sitting around me. And I asked them, I was trying to get them to have this idea. And I said, describe home for me. What does the word home mean to you? And one little boy yelled out, it's the place where me and mommy and daddy get to run around in our underwear. (laughs) And isn't that true? If you want to, it's where home is. It's where you can drink orange juice straight out of the container if you want to. It's where you can lick the ice cream bowl if you want to. Where babies get made and pictures get hung and happy birthday gets sung and games get played and windows get opened on spring days and favorite flowers get planted in the yard. 
And when you finally move away, on the last day, you will walk through those now empty rooms and hollow halls, and you will think you are not just walls and windows and doors. You are home. And for centuries, Jewish men and Jewish women and Jewish boys and Jewish girls have finished the most important holiday of the year for them with a simple phrase, next year in Jerusalem, next year home. And John says, behold, I am making everything new. Someday, someday we will start over, and when we do, we will at long last be home. With our magnificent Father, who will wipe away every tear from our eyes forever. Home. That's the first metaphor. There's a second image, second metaphor, and it's the bride. And in all honesty, this is a little bit strange because the bride actually never really shows up in what I read, but the bride is there. In fact, when I read this for you, when John first sees the new Jerusalem in verse 2, John sees the city, but what he describes is a bride. Now, this is really a wonderful image, so you're going to have to stick with me a little bit to understand it. I think you probably know that uh, back in the day, a Jewish wedding, a Jewish marriage was always a two-step process. Uh, The first step was being betrothed. So you remember every Christmas, every year when we tell the Christmas story, when we read about Joseph being betrothed to Mary, we talk about this two-step process. Step one was this betrothal. It was kind of like our engagement, but a whole lot stronger. The bride and the groom, when they were betrothed, would actually exchange gifts. The two families would make covenants with each other. And in fact, if the covenant was broken, if one of the two became unfaithful, or if they broke the covenant in some way, it actually required a divorce to end the betrothal. But during this period of time, the betrothal, the husband and wife, the man and wife, didn't yet live together. They lived in their families of origin. And the wedding, the actual wedding, would actually only happen long after the betrothal. And there was a very practical reason for this. Very practical reason for this two-step process. Usually, a couple did not go house hunting back in the day. Most families lived in very simple houses, just a series of rooms, and these rooms were kind of built around an outside courtyard. And the courtyard was where, you know, usually there was a couple animals, and usually the courtyard was was where the kitchen was, but there would be very simple rooms built around this courtyard. And usually, if you lived long enough, There were multiple generations in each family living in these houses around the courtyard. So when a son would get betrothed to a woman, usually soon after that betrothal, usually the dad would start building another room to the house. 
That was the very practical reason for the delay between a betrothal and the actual wedding day. It's why the couple didn't actually set a date for the wedding, because the bottom line is when the room's done, whenever the room was done, that's when the wedding would happen, when the room was ready. So as soon as the room would be ready, the family would send the news out to everybody. Hey, the wedding we told you about is going to happen. We're having a wedding. And the friends of the groom would get together, and the groom and all of his friends would lead this happy little parade through the city, and they would go to the bride's house, and they would pick up the bride, and they would take her back to the house, and all of her family and all of her friends would follow, and they would get back to the house where the new room was ready, and that's when the wedding actually took place, and the wedding would last for days, which is exactly what Jesus meant in John chapter 14, this is get arrested night for Jesus, John 14. This is his last night with his friends. And he's about to leave, and they know something is going on that is dreadful, but they don't know what. And so Jesus got his closest friends together, and he said this, look, don't let your hearts be troubled about this. Trust me. Trust me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. I'm going there to get a place, a room ready for you. And when everything is ready, of course, I will come back and get you. And I will take you to be with me. And you will be with me always in my father's home. You see the image? Does it make sense? The groom is now with the father now. He's preparing our home. And someday the groom will show up for his bride, us. And he will take us to be where? Home. Home. And the wedding party will start, which is why in Revelation and elsewhere, very often heaven is described, our arrival in heaven is described as a raucous wedding party because the groom has finally carried his bride home and the wedding can start. Now, in this book, admittedly, John, as I said, who was mixing his metaphors all up, John actually says, I see the bride, the bride is all ready. John sees the bride dressed and ready. The only thing that we're waiting for now is the groom, which is why almost the last words in the book of Revelation are this, the spirit and the bride say to the groom, come, come. The bride's ready. Someday the groom will come. And when he comes, where will he take us? Home. So if it sounds like a theme is emerging, it should sound that way. Behold, John says, I am making all things new. Start over? We shall. And when we do, at long last, we will be home. So that's the second metaphor, the metaphor of a bride. There's one more, 
And it's the image or the metaphor of a garden. Now, it's very obvious, at least, I think so, when you read John's book and he starts talking about the, the images and the image of a garden, I think it becomes pretty obvious very quickly that the garden is the Garden of Eden. It's the original paradise. John describes this river that flows from the garden, the river from which all nations can drink at any time, and there's never any thirst. And John says there's no more curse, which is an obvious reversal of the original curse when humans were banished from the garden. And most importantly to this image, John says that there is a tree of life. We haven't seen this tree of life since Genesis in the Garden of Eden. Now, to be honest, sometimes we get really confused because of the language of John because in John's book, he says that there is a tree which grows on both sides of the river and it bears fruit all year long. And so some people think, well, if it's on both sides of the river, there's got to be several trees, but there's not. In John's mixed up metaphors, even though it's growing on both sides of the river, there's only one tree. John is simply saying anybody can get to it. It's accessible to everybody. And he's telling us that this tree brings life all year long. It never stops. It's always available. But there's one really surprising thing about this tree, and I think that we miss it entirely in our English language. So here's the deal. You know, in the Greek language that John is writing in, the, the usual word for a tree in the Greek language is the word dendron. Uh, almost every time you read about a tree in the Bible, this is the word you read, dendron. You know, that thing with leaves and birds in it, it's a dendron. The word for tree of life that John uses is a really odd word. It's the word xylon. And the best way to show you what the word xylon means is to show you how it gets used in the Bible. So, for example, in Acts chapter 5, in Acts 5, Jesus has now returned to the Father, and Peter is preaching about Jesus, a resurrected Jesus, and he gets arrested for preaching about a resurrected Jesus. The Jewish leaders and the Romans do not want to hear that the man they crucified is living, so they arrest Peter, and they tell Peter, stop talking about Jesus. And Peter responds by saying, well, we must obey God rather than you. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead after you killed him by hanging him on a cross. And the word Zylon is that last word, cross. So ponder that for just a minute. Do you know what the tree of life is? The cross. The cross. Do you get it? Behold. I am making all things new, says the voice from the throne. And the voice of course is the voice of Jesus who is making all things new. And where does that start? Well... It starts now. 
The cross is the tree of life. And that means that what gets made new starts here and it starts now. You know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we, uh, it wasn't this cross exactly, but a couple of weeks ago, uh, we talked about the baggage we carry. And I gave you, those of you who are here, an invitation to take your baggage and your sins and write it on a little puzzle piece and leave it on the cross. And it hung on the cross for several weeks. Um, this is my puzzle piece right there. That's mine. And when we put these on this cross, I read over some of yours. I, they're anonymous. I don't know whose they are. Um, but I read yours. And it breaks my heart to see what you're carrying around. But here I am listening to Jesus who is saying, Behold, I make all things new. And it struck me that I am in that sentence. That if he is making all things new, I'm there. And so are you. So the cross I now know is the tree of life. So I look at the little thing that I wrote, and I don't want it there anymore. So it's not magic, but I think I'll take mine off. Behold, making all things new. What about yours? Do you want it gone? I don't think Jesus has Windex, but... Like maybe somebody wants to help. Guess not. Somebody use pen. Behold, John said, I'm making all things new. Let's pray. Father, um, there are some people who've been carrying around some real garbage. And God, the promise of newness 
doesn't have to wait. But it starts now. So, Father, I pray that as we look forward to someday being home, that we'll discover and experience that home starts now in your presence and that you're in the process of making all things new now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.